0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. The real conflict is between these two worldviews that have always been in conflict. Since the fall of man, the world has known what theologians call the antithesis between truth and error. And we've never gotten out of that problem. And, and now we're finding it rather evidently expressed in the modern world. It's come out onto the surface. I have all kinds of reasons why that happened. I won't be giving those to you today. But what makes the debate difficult, of course, is that the progressives, and especially the homosexuals, are accusing the defense of this other worldview, the only other worldview possible, as homophobic. So how do you talk rationally when people are accusing you of hate speech? Especially since the dictionary definition of phobia tells us that it is a serious pathology, an anxiety disorder characterized by extreme irrational fear of things or social institutions. Now you realize, if you are against the homosexual agenda, you're sick. You need help. You're suffering from a mental disorder. Alas, this is coming to be the discourse that we are hearing. This is not just being invented. You know the claim is we're homophobic, but more and more we're being silenced because Our speech is detrimental to people who don't want to hear it, and so we must be dismissed as dangerous and as homophobic. And then of course you have in the church the fear of this, the intimidation factor is enormous, and so many churches have decided not to talk about the issue. My lecture to the pastors on Wednesday was entitled, Pesky Verses of the the Power of God. It was all about how we understand Romans chapter 1 and what it says about homosexuality. But that's the way many Christians are describing what the Bible says about homosexuality. One or two pesky verses, or they call them clobber texts. Or the other one is what President Obama said he... Described it as one obscure line in Romans. Well, if you get my book, <laughs> I'm not trying to get the, sell the book, but I, I try to show that it is part of a very coherent argumentation that Paul, a brilliant theologian, makes as he talks about our situation. But it's become an important subject because 70% of the millennial generation now thinks that homosexuality is a normative lifestyle. So there's no way that we as Christians cannot take up this issue. Silence will make it worse, and even if we speak, it's going to be different. But what I'm suggesting to you is that we not speak about it moralistically. You know, the what was done in the past with which brought great criticism to us was those Christians who just held up banners saying God hates facts. That gives the impression you see that we're okay and these people are bad. Well, we all know from the Bible that we're all bad. And we have to communicate that. And so we cannot communicate on this level using what I call notions of moralism that we're good and they're bad. That we mustn't do. So, holier than thou. We're the good people, the clean people, the straight people, and these people over here are not. Well, we're all sinners. And that message has to be heard. So, this is not a harangue as such against this particular sin. But rather, I'm trying to show you so that you will have some basis in your own thinking. The historical reality of homosexuality and its place within this larger worldview of what I call this morning one is, if we can understand it from that perspective, and oddly enough, a number of gay leaders see it in this light as well. So you're on pretty much solid ground to. Talk about homosexuality this way as really an embodiment of this particular worldview of paganism or oneism, which those people feel is the truth, so they're happy to say that. And so we can do it as well. So I want to show you how homosexuality fits in this larger context of history and theology. I want to give you the big picture of the situation because it's taken us all by surprise to see the rise of homosexuality in our time. I've often been struck by the fact that the rise of homosexuality has actually occurred at the same time as the rise of pagan spirituality. Have you notice that? The last generation has seen a rise of a public endorsement of homosexuality. At the same time, we've seen this enormous expansion of people seeking spiritual answers to their questions in a whole host of pagan religions. Those things are related. Historically, they're related, and actually, ideologically, they're related. But when I grew up, I didn't even know what homosexuality was. Never heard the word. There's been a massive change. Elizabeth Fox Genovese, a radical feminist, Marxist, PhD in history from Harvard, who was one of the 60s revolutionaries who fought for the victory of sexual liberation. Towards the end of her life, she died. <laughs> That's one of the most profound statements I've ever heard. <laughs> Actually, towards the end of her life, she, and Marxism died, and she became a Christian. And she wrote a book about the 60s, and this is what she said. Within a remarkably brief period, has occurred a cataclysmic transformation of the very nature of our society. Now, you young people don't see this because you were born post this event, and you think it's always been this way. But for people of my age, we saw a different kind of culture, and then all of a sudden, something else happens. I think her term is very interesting, a cataclysmic transformation. So, in a certain sense, (laughs) What we're seeing is abnormal in terms of the history of the West. I have a very long lecture that I won't give you uh, on why this has happened. Um, And I won't even tell you what the lecture is, because I'd be too tempted. But I do think there were some events that actually catapulted this event to take place, this cataclysm be that as it may, this is what we now see, and I suggested to you, that there is a relationship between what we are seeing sexually and what we are seeing spiritually. The two go together. Spirituality and sexuality are two of the most important elements in the life of a human being. And at this level, we are seeing expressed in various ways, this radical transformation. And it's a transformation, it seems to me, from a more or less biblical worldview and a culture based on that to a modern Western culture now based on thoroughly different bases. And and so this has just overturned everything that the West has known for 1,500 years. That's why it's cataclysmic. Now, I run the risk of being oversimplified, and just making things so easy to understand that I'm not really giving you the truth, but with that risk, I'm suggesting to you that sexuality and spirituality form a massive unity of action and thinking. And that's what we're up against today. I thought. David's lecture this morning was wonderful, where he showed how our understanding of relationships has been so radically changed. And that's really part of what we're talking about. How do we understand ourselves? And we understand ourselves now independently of any structures, and especially independent of God. There's no ultimate patriarch. God the Father who determines our lives are structures that he's built into the universe to help us live in the world he made. So we're in this no man's land or every man's land, however you want to take it, where we do exactly what we want to do. So I tried to come up with terminology to explain this and very simply I would say we used to live in a Hetero cosmological world, and we now live in a homo cosmological world. Would you like to know what they mean? Those terms. I thought you would. <laughs> Hetero cosmological means the world of difference. Hetero means different. So God and the world are different. Human beings are different between male and female, right and wrong are different, true and false. All those differences. Reigned in a heterocosmological world. In the homocosmological world, everything is the same. God and human beings are the same, right and wrong, are relativized, and so on. I think we've moved them from a heterocosmological world to this now homocosmological world. And they represent two ways of seeing the world. I talked about one is one is the notion that the world is self-created and explains itself. Everything is made of the same stuff. There is one basic kind of self-creating existence. And in one way or another, in a thousand different ways, we worship nature. It can be very spiritual, it can even be atheistic, but we worship nature. The created order has actually created itself, is divine and is worthy of worship. Because everything shares in the same divine substance, all distinctions in principle must be eliminated. Because there is no real distinction anyway. That's what you I call monism and you're seeing this in spades in your culture today. Opposed to that is the worldview of 2 Why did I use that term? Well, the world is the work of an external creator who caringly made it, but is separate and distinct from it, just like a watchmaker is not the same as the watch. How ridiculous to think that that would be the case. So God is external to us. He's other than us. That's the massive declaration of scripture from page one to the end. Now, if God is different than us, and that there are two kinds of existence, the creator and the creation, then we can talk about twoism There are two kinds of existence, right? They're not the same. They can be reconciled, they can be brought together, but they're not the same. That's why. I use the term tourism. Now, I didn't make this up, of course. I sent you to the text of which my book is an exegesis. I'm not pushing my book, by the way. Um, just to let you know. <laughs> Namely, Romans chapter 1, and especially verse 25. I don't know whether you folks have noticed. Why am I using this? I don't need this. Do because yeah. <laughs> I like to walk around a bit and I thought, oh no, I'm stuck to this thing, but I forgot that this point. <laughs> um, You know, many of us have read this text and it's gone through one ear and the other. What does Romans 125 say? You probably all know it. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. What's Paul saying here? He's saying there are only two ways to exist in this world. You either worship creation, or you worship the Creator. There's no other possibility of being religious of being human, but doing one of those two things. Like I showed you on my PowerPoint, there are only two ways of presenting the real issues, either with one circle or two. And when your pagan friends tell you, Oh, you're so bigoted and close minded, wait a minute, you have one circle, I have two. Can I keep my two circles? Is that okay with you? That's my story. I'm sticking with it. You see, these are the only two options. And the Apostle Paul saw this so clearly as he's writing to Christians in this pagan metropolis of Rome. Telling them how to understand their world. Now our world is becoming very much like the Roman Empire. I never thought I'd ever say this in North America, but I'm more and more convinced that this is the case. So this biblical text now speaks to us with incredible uh, poignancy because it's speaking not only to that situation like that, but now to ours. It's worth thinking about now that was my introduction, just so you know. Now my lecture <laughs> is putting the, the, the issue of homosexuality in a in a broad context and then in a more specific one. All right. So here's the broad context. I've sort of laid it out. But what I'm seeing, and we've all already mentioned it today, is a massive attack on what we call the binary. You will see many times the statement that we must eliminate the binary. Now, we are being accused of being homophobic. This worldview is duophobic. You like that? Because it was to eliminate notions of two-ness. It's very interesting, you see. I told you about the term Advaita, not to. And that's a sort of a theoretical notion coming from Hinduism that we're told is now spreading throughout our Western culture. Things are not two, they're one. Now if that's the case, then it's certainly interesting to see to what extent the powers that be in Hollywood, in journalism, Politics and so on are absolutely set on eliminating the notion of twoness, what they call the binary. As two lesbians in their essay say, "Can we put an end to the gender binary? There is no one way a person should be." And so, in our context now, there is this attempt to eliminate from the memory of the Western world, and especially the memory of the kids growing up, the very notion of two it, it really is a sort of uh, brainwashing that is going on that will succeed in many cases because kids will not hear the opposite story and they'll be quite convinced that really everything is one. Because they do, not, they do not see tourism reaffirmed in all these areas of our lives, which is the way God created the world to be in the first place. And so we see a, a systematic rejection of the binding, especially, obviously, in sexuality, which is the issue of our, sub- of our conference today. We must remove the sexual binary. At Oberlin College, founded by two Presbyterian ministers and once had the principal Charles Finney, now has become a very radical school and describes transgenderism as the transgressing of gender norms, finding a space that combines or defies the binary in our society. This, you see, becomes an ideological notion to determine how a university or college lives out its normal life in rejecting the notion of the binary. As Randy said so well earlier, while we were told that gay marriage would not harm anybody, it would just be a little addition. For a few people that love each other, and don't they deserve our respect and civil rights? The Gay Revolutionary Party manifesto, already in 1970, said this: 1970. The Gay Revolution will produce a world in which all social and sensual relationships will be gay, which is what you said. <laughs> Were well, you remember that? <laughs> and in which homo and heterosexuality will be incomprehensible terms. See the goal? To eliminate the very notion of two kinds of sexuality altogether. The binary terms will be eliminated, and of course this is going on pace. In some countries, the M and F in uh, birth certificates or passports is being eliminated, male and female. In, in many schools throughout the world now, mother and father, or on uh, all kinds of public documents, mother and father is eliminated from parent A and parent B. There's no such thing as a father. Wow. You see, you see how that can affect our preaching of the gospel when we talk about God the Father who loves us and His Son? This is, taking, is being taken away from us with this common language that wants to efface those notions. But this is happening in all areas of our lives, it seems to me. That we're eliminating the binary In the notion of morality, good and evil, Carl Jung, he's a favorite of mine, Says this, we must beware of thinking of good and evil as absolute opposites. And he's one of the men who influenced psychology in the West about as deeply as anybody else. We must beware of thinking of good and evil as absolute opposites. In fact, he was the one who developed the whole notion of psychological health for mature individuals. To take the opposites of their own lives and join them together. To join the opposites, which is a classic pagan operation, and transcend them and dominate them. And that's how you become an individuated, independent human being. That's that theory of Carl Jung. In epistemology, or the theory of knowing, we see the elimination of truth and error, in the postmodern rejection of truth and error as merely socially constructed ideas. Truth is merely a function of ever-changing social constructs. In psychology, in transpersonal psychology, the belief is that the binary view of reality Made up of opposites is a hallmark of neurosis and requires therapy to bring about unitive healing. So uh, if you want to be a healthy person today, you better get rid of the notion of opposites. In politics, the movement of the West now is towards the pushing uh, forward of the state and the diminution of the family and the individual. Somebody's written about this, and by the name of Pipes, in his book Communism and History, he says the totalitarian state aims at obliterating all distinctions between itself and the citizenry by penetrating and controlling every aspect of organized life. So, you see, it comes in, in politics, where the state wants to be the oneist word, joining everything together, and the individual must be crushed. Obviously, this is happening in spirituality. I've already mentioned to you how the West has become Hinduized, and how as Philip Goldberg in his book, American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, and that was published in 2010, tells us that we've all become Hindus because we all use the terms karma, mantra, mandala, yoga, avatar, and probably a few more. But then remember what he said, that the West is coming to believe the fundamental notion of Hinduism, which is ad vaita, not to. So all these methodologies, all these terms we use, are pushing this notion of not to in spirituality. And of course it's entering the church. We don't like the idea of the antithesis. We're all in favor of the synthesis. Brian McClacken, Brian McLaren says we need to move beyond our deadlock, our polarization, our binary, either-or thinking. See, this becomes a model for the way Christians think about their own way of being in the world as well. I got something for you, people, that is hot off the press, and you may not have seen it. And I'd be really tickled if I was the only one who knew this. In the Toronto Sun, did anyone see this on October the 11th? I was on the plane a couple of days ago and was reading, and I found this. In Montreal, Catholic and Protestant instruction, as you know, was removed from the Quebec schools 15 years ago, and that they banned all kinds of religious symbolism. So you may be questioning the validity from Clausen. That's okay. But those fundamental notions of twoism are there in the symbolism and whatnot. But nuns and priests are being replaced, says the article, by spiritual community animators. Did you see that, anybody? See that the Joe, of course. The two guys that should have seen it anyway. Um, spiritual community animators who are now working on. Breathing sessions as part of the plan of state neutrality with regard to religion. However, they do say that this is an attempt to focus on young people's search for meaning. So you see, you get young people to kit into periods of meditation where they're actually asking the meaning of life. And one of these people said, I don't see it as religious. I see it as spiritual. Spirituality is the sense that all human beings have an essence and that we are connected by an invisible thread that binds all humans together. You see how that notion of the binary of truth and falsehood and of worshipping God or the gods of paganism has gone. And that's being inculcated in Canada. As the good direction in which to take our children. Of course, you see this—the destruction of the binary in this interfaith movement, which removes the uniqueness of the Christian faith. It's the belief that there are diverse, equally equally valid paths to God, because ultimately they're all one. <coughs> So the interfaith movement is invested in this elimination of the theological binding. In the United States, we see the, and I'm sure you see it here, we see the banning of the binding of the Christian faith in the public square. At Vanderbilt University, where I've taught the Christian groups from time to time, it was decided last year that the Christian student groups. That hold to traditional Christian religious views, a belief in the Bible, a belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, expressed in worship, prayer, and the Bible study, are not officially tolerated on the campus as valid student groups, and they were kicked off. Fourteen groups were asked to leave the college campus. That's in the Bible Belt. <laughs> you won't see more churches than in Nashville amazing and beautiful buildings. But uh, this is what's happening at (laughs) the Leading University. I told you of the account in the UK a few weeks ago, Joshua Williamson, who was arrested preaching the gospel in Perth, Scotland, accused of a breach of the peace. It was interesting because he was preaching the gospel in open air stuff. Down the street were buskers playing instruments with um, microphones, uh, so sort of blasting their music. Now they were not preaching the peace, but this one voice was preaching the peace. I, I'm afraid that's where we're going, you see, that you, the, the, the pagan world cannot abide the announcement of tourism. It all has to be one, or the peace is broken. We're seeing it in the expressions of eschatology, the ultimate distinction between heaven and hell. How long is it before you've seen, since you've seen or heard a sermon on heaven and hell? The vision now for most people is union with the divine, no one left behind. There's no paradise, no fall, neither heaven nor hell, only Rob Bell, <laughs> and love wins. Well, this, alas, is the state, you see, of, of the Christian Church in many places. We've was the binary of that ultimate judgment seat and of heaven and hell. And of course, it all comes down to the elimination of the binary between us and God, that valid distinction that the Bible makes between God as Creator and we as creatures. Well, that's the context in which I see the rise of homosexuality. It's part of this effacing of any notion of valid distinction. I mean, you think about it. You can add to it the multiculturalism and so on that we now are still living in. So I want to look now at the, the specific issue of homosexuality and a little bit about where it is now, but its history as well. I think to understand the contemporary. Revolution that we have noted as a cataclysmic transformation, we do need to see this new view of sexuality as an integral expression of old paganism. Which, obviously, like everything else, attacks the notion of the binary. In history, throughout time and space, if you want to find some more details I published an article in Jubilee which uh, gave more of the details you can find that article <coughs> on my website as well you can find an article along those lines but in history across time and space pagan cults consistently not exclusively but consistently, hold out the leader of their group namely the guru or the high priest as an emasculated male or an androgynous priest. Now androgyny, for those of you who don't know this term androgyny comes from two Greek terms andros and gune meaning andros, male gynecology gune, Female. Androgyny means the joining together in one person of the two genders. Now you can see how that's an an immediate destruction of the binary, right? Androgyny has no place for the binary. How interesting then that the leaders of pagan groups through time immemorial have been homosexual. Now you see, a homosexual is an androgynous person because the homosexual is both male and female in the couple. You get, both of them get to play the same, or well, the two roles of male and female. So it's an essential androgynous relationship. Uh, now, if this were just my invention, we should all go home because you don't want to hear just theories of mine. One of the leading history of religion scholar in the world, Mircea Eliade, a Romanian, who produced a 16-volume encyclopedia on pagan religions, wrote also a book about this issue of androgyny. He calls it um, Ritual Androgyny, and he says it's a religious universal which appears virtually everywhere, and at all times in the world's religions. So homosexuality as sort of giving the lead to the spirituality of pagan religions throughout time and space, he says, is seen absolutely everywhere. Now he was in favor of it, so he's not writing just to to critique the idea, but simply to document it. And uh, certainly he's the one guy that you should go to throughout time and space. Throughout time, from, well, I can go back as far as the second millennium BC to the Sumerian age with the goddess Ishtar, 1800 BC, and her priests in devotion to her, had been transformed in their masculinity into femininity. So the priests of the goddess Ishtar had changed their sexuality from male to female. Doubtless had become, in a certain sense, homosexual. They, they functioned as occult shamans. They released the sick from the power of demons. They seem to have engendered, says a contemporary scholar, of demonic abhorrence in others. Fearful respect was theirs. They, They provoked in others fear. Their position between myth and reality, the divine and demonic, enabled them to transgress boundaries. Transgressing boundaries means... Joining the opposites, the boundaries define distinctions. To transgress boundaries is to join them. So this is the function in 1800 BC of these pagan priests of Ishtar. In the ancient Canaanite world, it's the same thing. The goddess Anat preserves many of the similarities of the goddess Ishtar. The goddess Sibyle, whom Paul met in Athens as under the name of Artemis, is served by homosexual priests called Galloi, And uh, it's interesting that that worship of Artemis, or Sibyle, as she's known, Was still going on in the 5th century AD, where St. Augustine observes what's happening. And he gives a description in his book, The City of God, chapter 7, verse 26, describing the games offered in honor of Sibylle. And he describes the disgusting acts of these gala, these homosexual priests. It was almost like it was a gay parade in the fifth century AD. So you can follow through history that this has been the case. Over space is an interesting view of things as well. And over space, of course, and the extent of the globe, you really cannot ever explain any direct connections. And, and my thinking is, if you cannot show that there are connections between these groups, then it must then the practice of homosexuality as a spiritual uh, contribution must arise naturally, if you will, from the pagan ideas that uh, these cults adopted. You see the, uh, the the logic here? If you can't show that people said, look, we do this here, why don't you try it here? Because we're talking about vast distances. And that's also through time. But I'm thinking now throughout space. For instance, the Siberian shamans known as Chukchi are androgynes. The shamans of Central Asia dressed as women. Among the peoples of southern Borneo, the Basia, asexual priest shamans, hermaphrodites, dressing, behaving like women, have the priestly function. You see, those places are not contiguous. that totally separate them in space, and yet the same phenomenon occur in all of them. Here's another case. The shamans of the Amazon similarly are homosexual priests. The Indian hijras play the same role. A religious community of men who dress and act like women <coughs> who serve the mother goddess, Mata, worshipped throughout India. Uh, tantric yoga in India as well is given to an androgynous expression, where the god Shiva and the goddess Shakti are joined together in the tantric yogic practices. When uh, Shakti, the female spirit, is understood, it's interesting as a as a serpent at the basis of the spine. And through these uh, methods of altered states of consciousness will you cause this serpent to rise through the various chakra points until it meets uh, Shiva, and then the god and the goddess are joined together in this one yogic practitioner. In uh, Buddhism, the bodhisattva is androgynous. In American Indian religious practices, you find American Indian, we're talking about, you know, just south of you, and I guess also here, the American Indian religious practices had transvestite homosexual males, the Berdachi, who functioned as shamans. Among the Navajo, the Nagli, same thing. Among the Zuni, they had he-she people who functioned as powerful, positive, spiritual people. This is to be found, the same practice, in Africa, Australia, in the Yoruba religion of Cuba. I was down south. Africa America and uh, met a South American Christian scholar who did some fundamental research on the pre-Columbian times and discovered that in the Aztec religion, and the Mayan religion, homosexual priests were known. And that was suppressed. Actually, when the Roman Catholic conquistadores went in, they suppressed it themselves. But the knowledge of that was not known until recently. So all I'm trying to show you is that this is a worldwide phenomenon over time time, and over space. And so what we're seeing today is not new. As one book on homosexuality says, tracing the history of gay male spirituality, gender-variant men have fulfilled a sacred role throughout the millennia. I guess what we can conclude from this is that there is a spiritual element here. We can't just see this as physical, and we can't simply or merely see this as civil rights. There is something much more powerful going on here, and for proof, I'd like to cite to you an ex-Southern Baptist eco-feminist lesbian witch. I said that in South America, and then looked at my translator and said, translate that (laughs) one? A Southern Baptist, an ex-Southern Baptist, eco-feminist, lesbian witch. He did it. He was good. Uh, Emily Culpepper, she uh, teaches at the University of Redlands in Southern California, of course. She sees gays and lesbians. Notice this. I didn't know when I first read this what she was talking about because I hadn't done this research. She said, gays and lesbians are shamans for a future age. So we're seeing people now picking up that theme of what these homosexual spiritual people were doing in the past and saying this is the future. This practice has a spiritual power that we will see unfurled in the future. What does she mean by a shaman? Here's what she says it is. A shaman is a charged, potent, awe-inspiring, even fear-inspiring person who takes true risk by crossing over into other worlds. There's something occulted about all of this. And crossing over into other worlds really is transgressing boundaries, you see, and eliminating the need for boundaries, if you will, which are the distinctions that God put in the world. Another ex-Christian is Virginia Mollenkopf. Some of you might know that name. She taught in a CNMA college, and I gave this lecture one time, and the lady came up and she said, oh, she was my professor of literature. So she was well learned in the evangelical world, until she came out as a lesbian. And uh, She says that she speaks for gays and lesbians because we are God's ambassadors. You see, she sees a spiritual role for gays and lesbians, just like in past history there was a spiritual role. Now she says, she was told this by her guardian angel, a spirit guide, the Holy Spirit of Jesus. She doesn't know actually, who told her? So she's gone a long way from being an evangelical. But this comes home, this mixing of male and female. When you find somebody like Tony Campolo, who has gone throughout the Western world speaking to Christian students, saying this, not only do I love the feminine in Jesus, But the more I know Jesus, the more I realize that Jesus loves the feminine in me. Society has brought me up to suppress the so-called feminine dimension of my humanness. But when Jesus makes me whole, both sides of who I am meant to be will be finally realized. Then and only then will I be fully able to love Jesus. I wonder how that fits with Genesis 127, by the way. I tell you what though, it fits awfully well with that book I told you I read in Canada so many years ago, uh, Going Within, by Shirley MacLaine who says that the goal of the New Age spirituality is to discover that we are both males and females and androgynous beings. How easy it is to swallow down this kind of off baked psychology, which by the way also came from Jung he was the first one really to propose that we're made up of two spirits, the anima and the animus, the male and the female. And the, the goal of spiritual maturity, or of human maturity, is to join the male and female together. So we're in the same area of the joining of the opposites of male and female. Well, what does that do then to this spirituality? How does this spirituality work? A gay leader at a pagan spirit spirit gathering said, we feel there is a power in our sexuality, a queer energy that most cultures consider magical. It is practically a requirement for certain kinds of medicine and magic. So there's a certain oddness to this sexuality that gets people in touch with the magical and mysterious. Another gay said the same thing. It is simply easier to blend with a nature spirit or the spirit of a plant or an animal. You see, that's totally pagan, But it's easier to do that if you are not concerned with gender-specific roles. In other words, if you've gotten rid of the boundary of male and female, you will find it much easier to, to blend with the spirits of animals and plants. Now, of course, this is not Ridiculous, this is what pagans do. If you have a friend who hugs a tree, don't tell him he's silly, tell him he's a pagan. Because if the world is divine, then you should be hugging trees. Anyway, um, but you see, this gets very spiritual, blending with the spirits of animals. It's very easy, he says, if you're not worried about a specific gender. Now this scholar, Eliade, gives an explanation to the spirituality of this kind of practice. He tries to explain the religious function of homosexual priest shamans. He says, it is precisely because they combine the two cosmological planes, earth and sky, and also that they combine in their own person the feminine element of earth and the masculine element of the sky. Here we have, he says, ritual androgyny, known throughout history as the coincidencia oppositorum, the joining of the opposites. So the joining of the opposites, you see, is this classic pagan uh, attempt to eliminate distinction. And this scholar says, this is the high point of these homosexual shamans, that they truly join the opposites. And I think, having heard David's lecture this morning, I came to realize more clearly that this understanding of relationships, as only focused on the self, seems to suggest that the homosexual relationship, gay marriage Is the perfect expression of this kind of living. In other words, it's not just an aberration that some people engage in, but it becomes the the very uh, fulfillment, if you like, uh, of this kind of thinking about the self. And Scott was telling me that he did with Scott, that he was doing studies in um, in in literature and, and sees the same kind of phenomenon in the joining of the opposites in in all kinds of places uh, that you look at. Well, how does this function? This is the joining of the opposites for spiritual reasons, you see, not just physical expression but uh, also spirituality. It's because homosexual persons express within themselves both both sexual roles of male and female. They engage as both male and female, and thus can begin to understand the joining of other elements in our lives, in the universe. As they do it on the physical plane, there is a great call to do it on the spiritual plane. So there is uh, more behind this homosexual movement than we thought. Uh, It's so deep, it's mind-boggling actually. Now, I'm not saying for one moment that every homosexual understands this. Uh, A lot of young homosexuals are just drawn in for all kinds of reasons. But actually the leaders have understood this for some time and are delighted at what is happening. They see a spiritual future for the world led by homosexual shamans. You see there's a certain amount of liberation here. You're no longer limited by external external laws of good and evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's true, what's false. You've already broken the limitations of gender, so really all limitations uh, can go. And it becomes a, um, a model for this idea that we see in the past, becomes a model for homosexuals in the present. Uh, A particular example of this is Michael Clark, a professor at Emory University, who is gay. And he says that something in our gay lesbian being appears to heighten our spiritual capacities. So here's a man engaged in the, you know, sort of everyday liberation of gender, but also seeing that there is a spiritual aspect to this. For Gaze, the problem with the Bible is not that Christians are mean, he understands this, but that the Bible cannot countenance this kind of spirituality. And for that reason, he who was raised in the faith looks no longer to the Bible for a spiritual model. Guess where he looks? He looks at the American Indian shaman, the Berdache born as a male, but as an adult, chooses to live as a female, because for him, this is the way forward, the Berdeci achieves the reunion or the union of the cosmic, sexual and moral polarities. You know, with different terms, you keep coming back to this notion of the Elimination of the binaries and the joining of the opposites is another way to say it. The the gay spiritual model of the Vedatshi achieves the union of the cosmic, sexual and moral polarities. The Vedatshi was known as the balancer, that's what that, I guess, means that he balances these two forces. And uh, guess what Anakin of Star Wars was called? Balancer. The balancer of the forces, the light and the dark side. This, you see, has gone into our general way of thinking through this immense movie, Star Wars. It was inspired, by the way, by Carl Jung. George Lucas was an avid follower of Joseph Campbell, who made myths, pagan myths, known throughout North America, who was a friend of Carl Jung, who developed this vision of finding health through pagan myths and the joining of the opposites. So here we are now, having made a full circle, where these ancient spiritual leaders find themselves reproduced in Stalin. Anarchy, the balance. So here we stand at the beginning of this new millennium, sort of reassessing where we are. We thought that gayness would go away or we just limited to a, a small percentage of the population, but it's forcing its way into the very center. Of our lives. And its goal, and I believe this deeply, its goal is to create a whole new civilization. A civilization not based on binary, but based on oneism. And the way I see that coming is that uh, the civilization to come will reject everything of the past that could be described as homophobic. You know, um, all our nursery rhymes, of poetry, uh, songs can all be rejected as homophobic and therefore untouchable, unsingable, unsaid. That's the way we're seeing it happen now. But can you imagine as this becomes a, a powerful, consistent way of looking at things? So we're in the presence of two gospels. The pagan gospel is that redemption comes as liberation from the Creator. Liberation from the Creator. The other gospel, the Christian gospel, is reconciliation with the Creator. That's the word we have to bring in our time. May the Lord, as He gives us an understanding of what's happening, make our Witness to the gospel even more powerful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.